Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. One of the uniquenesses of Christianity is that our relationship with God is both a done deal and a process. It's the done deal that makes the process possible. Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Counterculture with this sermon entitled Blessed Are the Pure in Heart, which covers Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Well, good morning, Perimeter Church. Uh, they say that a, a broken clock is right twice a day. In my case, it's right once a year, because I think this is actually the time we lost an hour of sleep. Is that correct? Am I okay on that one? Okay, so this time I'm right. So I'm glad you're here. You made it. You woke up. Uh, you're probably tired like I am. Uh, and we're about to dig into something that is precious. So let's turn our attention to God's word as Jessica reads it to us from Matthew 5. And then we'll pray together for God to open our hearts and our eyes. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts, that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that, as seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Gracious Father, we come to you as those who are tired and weary, and we pray, would you wake us up? Would you blaze in your glory and the way you blaze into the heart and life of Augustine? And Lord, would you consume our hearts and our affections with the only one who is worthy of them? Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. If you've ever visited the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C., you've no doubt seen this poem that is written on one of the walls. It's a famous poem. Even if you haven't been there, I'm sure you've probably heard it. It's a poem that goes like this. It says, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Those words, those are famous words, but what may be less famous 
is the life of the man who wrote them in 1946. This is a poem by a German pastor who was thrown in prison by Adolf Hitler during World War II, a poem that he wrote in 1946. And this pastor, he was friends with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was part of the same resistance movement, but for, for a multitude of reasons, he's not quite as remembered as Bonhoeffer was. For one, he wasn't quite the theologian. Uh, not many of us are out there reading Martin Niemöller books. They're just not quite as good. Uh, two, he went to prison. He didn't die. Bonhoeffer did. But three, his life and legacy are a far more complicated one. Because where Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler from the very beginning, where he recognized from the very start that Hitler was someone who was evil and was to be opposed with everything that he had, Niemöller was a supporter. Niemöller voted for him. Because he was convinced that Hitler was going to be able to take Germany out of the ashes of the aftermath of World War I and restore them to their former glory. And when he did eventually begin to oppose Hitler, it wasn't because Hitler was murdering innocent people and it wasn't because Hitler was showing aggression towards other nations and possibly throwing them into world war. It was because Hitler was beginning to interfere with who had control of the church. And for Niemöller, that was a bridge too far. He advocated for the Jews, but only for the ones who had converted and not for the ones who had not because he shared some of the same anti-Semitism that Hitler did. And when he was eventually thrown in prison, because of his vocal resistance to Hitler and his regime, he continued to offer his services to the German military as a U-boat captain because that's what he'd been in World War I. Because while he wanted to see Hitler fall, he wanted to see Germany victorious. And it was only when the war ended, when Hitler had died and Germany had been defeated, that Martin Niemöller began to wake up to the truth. That he began to see the full extent of what it was that they had done. And in 1946, in a German-speaking church in Manhattan, New York, Martin Niemöller climbed into the pulpit and he preached a sermon. The sermon that birthed the poem that now adorns the wall of the Holocaust Memorial. And to that German-speaking crowd, he said this. He said, we have to stop shifting the blame for this war. Because we are at fault. We are guilty. And the reason we are guilty is this. We did not follow God. We used his name for our causes, but we failed to love him, and it shows itself in this. We did not love our neighbor as ourself. Because when they came for the communists, we did nothing, because we weren't communists and we didn't care. And when they came for the Jews, we did nothing because we did not see them as our brothers and sisters and we did not care as much for them as we did for those who were and so we let it be. And in failing to love our neighbor, we failed to love the Lord our God and in thinking that we could give our affections, our loves, our hope to multiple masters, we failed to serve the only one who truly mattered, Jesus Christ himself and millions upon millions died. 
Now, you may be sitting there going, Caleb, that seems like the strangest possible sermon illustration to start a sermon on purity of heart with. But here's why I tell it. Because it is a story that circles the question sitting at the very heart of our text today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, we hear those words, and if you're like me, my mind immediately goes to purity. I hear that and I think sexual purity, moral purity, that is my knee-jerk response to that text. But while what Jesus is saying here, it encompasses both of those things, all of those things, it's digging into something that's far, far deeper. Jesus isn't talking about purity of action. Jesus is talking about purity of what? Heart, affection. It is a text built out of Old Testament texts like Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 24 where Jesus is saying, the one who is flourishing, the one who is blessed, it is the one who wills but one thing, who loves the Lord their God with all their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength. It is Jesus asking every single one of us the same question he asked Peter in John 21, do you love me? Do you love me with an uncompromised love? Do you love me with an undivided heart? Do you love me more than you love your safety and your security and your comfort? Do you love me more than you love your nation and your political party? Do you love me more than you love your father or your mother or your sister or your brother or your wife or your children? Do you love me more than you love your own life? And Jesus is drilling into that question because here is the truth of his kingdom. The one who is flourishing in the kingdom of God, it is the one whose will is but one thing. It is the one whose heart belongs to Jesus wholly and completely. And Jesus says that's the one who is blessed. Why? Because that is the one who will receive the one thing that matters most of all. The thing that is the sum of all of our hope and happiness. They will see God. The one in whose presence, as the psalmist says, is fullness of joy. And what's wonderful about the gospel is that this purity of heart that Jesus speaks of, this is purity that he offers to us as a gift. You know, in Psalm 24, the psalmist asks this question. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who is going to look upon God in all of his beauty and not just see him, but experience him in all of his grace and his goodness? Who is going to taste and see that the Lord is good into eternity? And the answer, he says, is this. It's the one who has clean hands, and here's the word, a pure heart. And then just in case you aren't sure what it means, he clarifies it in the very next verse. It's the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The pure in heart, according to the psalmist, it's the one who does not bow to idols. 
It's the one whose life is an integrated whole where what they say and what they do, they are exactly the same thing, whose heart is consumed by one all-consuming passion. They love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and everything in their life reflects that reality. Now, here's the problem. None of us, none of us can say that's true of us, can we? If we have to answer that question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, my hand is not going to go up. The, the purity that we need, if we're here to see God, it is purity none of us naturally possess. And when you read through the Gospels, Jesus makes this very, very clear. It's the main reason he critiques the Pharisees, isn't it? And he comes to the Pharisees, these men, these religious leaders who on the surface seem to do everything right. They know the scriptures. They worship regularly. They're not committing any of the major sins. They look pure and holy. They even dress like they're pure and holy. And Jesus looks at them. It would be the equivalent of Jesus looking at maybe one of your pastors, like me, and saying, hypocrite. In Matthew 23, he says, you were whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, but inside you are nothing but dead bones. And before we think that that's just a critique of the Pharisees, Jesus says, no, that same heart impurity, that is an issue that plagues every single man, woman, and child. We tend to think that it is the things that we consume that make us sinful. That that is what defiles us. But Jesus in Mark 7, Jesus says something different, doesn't he? What does Jesus say defiles us? He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Within. And they, they are what defile a person. Jesus says, since the fall of Adam, there is no difference when it comes to the heart between the seemingly best person and the seemingly worst. Between the Pharisee and the prostitute. Between the Sunday school teacher and the one who is in jail for child abuse. The heart, the heart is the same. As the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 20, there is no one who can say, I have made my heart clean. Because if we peel back the layers, if we begin to look beneath the veneer, what is it that, what is it that we all see? We see a twisted mass of competing desires. Hearts that are bound to their sins, not by physical chains, but by something much, much worse. Love. We sin not because we've been forced to. We sin because we want to. And we know it. We know it. Have you ever had the experience of somebody picking up your phone and beginning to scroll through your text messages? Does that make you feel good or terrified? Can you imagine what they would do if they could scroll through the contents of your heart? 
you know, I, I'm a bit of a nerd, and so the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of this is a sci-fi book I read probably about seven or eight years ago where this disease has plagued the planet and it's killed every single woman and it's left only the men alive. But while it's left them alive, it's changed them. And here's what it's done. It's made it that where every single person, no matter who you are, no matter who they may be, you can hear as though it's an audible sound everything they are feeling or thinking. And so if you were to walk into a room where there's 10 other people, you would know exactly what all 10 of those people are thinking and feeling. They could try to lie to you, but you would know the difference because you can hear it. Now, I remember reading that and getting the heebie-jeebies because I was thinking, I, that is one thing I absolutely never want to be true. To hear someone else's thoughts, yes, okay. Probably not good for me, but I would love to know. I don't want to be deceived or tricked. I'm gullible. But for them to see what's going on in my heart... That's something that I desperately do not want to have happen because I know exactly what they would see. And if we, if we are honest, if we're honest, we know that in answer to that question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, the answer is not us. Not in our own power and not in our own strength. We, if we are going to ascend it, we need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You know, I have four little girls. And sometimes we'll go on family walks through our neighborhood and it always ends up being chaos, but it's kind of fun. And our littlest one, she's one, so she goes in the stroller. And then our oldest girls, they're five and six, and they'll get on their bikes and their scooters and we'll begin to meander around the neighborhood. And, and almost inevitably, this is a, you know seven out of 10 times, uh, after about 15 minutes or so, we'll get to a hill. And suddenly, one or all three of the girls are looking at that hill and saying, Daddy, my legs are tired. And I can't go up that hill. I need you to carry my bike. I need you to carry me. And usually there's some kind of like negotiation, like I'll do this, but not that. But sometimes you end up carrying a bike and you've got a child on your throat and a stroller in your hand. And then someone else is trying, is crying because you're not carrying their bike and carrying them. And it turns into this massive chaotic moment. But there's something there that I think is important. They are getting to something they do not think they have the ability to do, and they are coming to me because they think, Daddy, he can do what I cannot. We need someone who can do that for us. And what Jesus says is, I am that man. The purity you need, Jesus says, that is purity that I would give because I'm the one who's pure in heart. Jesus is the only one. He's the only person in all of human history who from the cradle to the grave loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the only one who faced temptation and did not fall. He's the only one whose heart was not a twisted mess of competing desires. He is the only one who with every breath said, not my will, but yours be done to his heavenly Father. And what Jesus says is that he has come to be the pure in heart, not just that we would see it, but that we would receive it from him. Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 20? The son of man, 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give what? His life as a ransom for many. It's what the writer of Hebrews picks up on in Hebrews 10. When he points at Jesus, this perfect high priest who is without sin, who gives his life as a once-for-all offering that is able to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the one who came down the hill of the Lord and into death not to leave us at the bottom, but to pick us up and put us on his shoulders and carry us to the top. And the purity of heart we need, Jesus says, that is purity of heart that I would give. And here is what is glorious. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. It's his joy. The same heart the same heart that we see in Matthew 8 when Jesus is speaking to this leper and this leper comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you will, if you want to, if you have the heart to do it, you can make me clean. You have the power. My question is, do you actually care enough to do something about it? And what does Jesus say in response? Four of the most beautiful words you will find in the Bible. I will be clean. The glory of the gospel is there is one who would say those same words to us, who would give us his purity in place of our impurity so that we could stand in the presence of the Father and experience God and all of his goodness. But that's not the sum of Matthew 5, 8. You know, as we have been going through the Beatitudes, there has been this pattern where God gives us this thing as a gift, but it is now a disposition given by the Spirit that we are to pursue, live into, cultivate with all our hearts and lives. And it's the same here. And that means this purity that we receive as a gift, it is purity that is those who live in this world, full of sin and brokenness, this world where we are still battling with our own desires, it's a place where we experience purity, not as a done deal, but purity as what? A struggle. You see this in the scriptures. In 1 John 3, John is mirroring the language of Jesus. I mean, it is eerie how close he is to what Jesus is saying. And John is looking out at this church, a church a lot like this one, full of people who are still struggling with sin, who are battling with their flesh, who are at odds with the world around them, this world that loves itself and not the Lord and is trying to figure out how to navigate it, this world that looks at them and says, you don't seem like you're anything special. You say you're God's children, you look just like everybody else. And John goes, beloved, you are God's children now. And what you will be, it is not yet appear. There is something coming because we know this. When he appears, we shall be like him. And, and then he says this, why? Because we shall see him as he is. Matthew 5, 8. But then he adds this, and everyone, everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who has put their hope to see the Father in the Son, everyone who has come to trust in him, to believe in him, to fall into his arms, they purify themselves as he is pure. What's he saying? 
He's saying there is no such thing as someone who receives the purity of heart from Jesus as a gift who does not also receive with it a corresponding hunger to share the same heart. And for those of us living in this world, united as we are to Christ, because how can you be united to him if you don't desire the things that he desires? You don't just get his righteousness, you get his passion, his heart, his loves. That means that in this world, as we pursue him, as we begin to cast aside our idols and allow him to reign more and more over our affections, that means we will find ourselves in a world of struggle and conflict. And if we are to navigate that struggle and purify ourselves as he is pure, that means we have to be people of the word. Because the word does two things. First, the word guides us. Martin Luther, the reformer, he says, a pure heart is one that is watching and pondering what God says and replacing its ideas with the word of God. If you want to steal the language of Augustine, it's to let the word of testimony take up residence in your heart and then to let Dagon or the idols fall. It is you come to the word because you realize in the word is where God tells you what is good and righteous and beautiful. It's in the word that God shows his people what they are to look like. It's in the word that God shows us what it's like to truly live. So do you want to know what it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? Do you want to know how to love him in your job and in your family and with your body and your sexuality, with the way that you engage with other people? Do you want to know how to love him in the church? The answer, the answer according to the scriptures is you're not going to find that one by looking within. You're not going to find it by having conversations with your friends. You're not going to find it by combing through Netflix and watching the right documentaries or movies. You're not going to find it scrolling through social media or imbibing hours of some media pundit who says, here's the way the world is and here's the way you're supposed to be. There is one place where we will find that. And it's the word. God has given us his word that we would be guided, taught, shown what it is to love and enjoy him. But he's given us that word for another reason too. The word guides us. But the word also does something more precious still. The word reveals God. I don't know how many of you have ever sat and pondered these kind of things, but Sometimes when I'm reading through church history, I just find myself wondering, God, how in the world, how in the world were your people sustained in the midst of what looks like incredible trial and tribulation? You know, why, how were the saints of the early church sustained when they were faced with a choice between the lions or renouncing their faith? And why did so many say yes to the lions because they could not give up Jesus? Why did missionaries 
like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot willingly go to nations, to peoples that they knew might not receive them kindly and yet do so joyously, even though they knew it might cost them their lives? Why did believers like Harriet Tubman, an African-American woman, a former slave who escaped from slavery and made her way to the north, why did she go back into the south, risking enslavement and possibly death, over and over and over again so she could bring others out of their bondage and into freedom? Why do you say no when your boss asks you to do something that's unethical, even though you know that saying no could cost you your job? But why, after we've stumbled and fallen into sin, do we confess those sins not just to the Lord, but to the person that we have offended, even though we know it might have dire consequences? Why would we do, why would anyone do such crazy things as that? The answer is just this. It's because they've met God. You know, the word, the word gives us more than knowledge. If that was all it did, that would only go so far, just knowing what you're supposed to do, but the word, it gives us far more than that. The word reveals who God is and what God has done and what God is going to do, and that, that's transformative. Because when we begin to see that God, that begins to transform our hearts. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, when the Spirit lifts the veil, we begin to look into the Word, we begin to see the glory of God. We meet this God who changes every single thing, who becomes the means through which we see and understand the world that we inhabit. We meet the one who created the heavens and the earth and every single thing that was in them. We meet the one who can take seas and make them dry land, who can take deserts and make them oases. We meet the one who can take the dead and bring them out of their tombs, not as walking zombies, but as human beings restored to life. We see the one who can give sight to the blind, but he even more important than that, we see the God who is merciful and gracious. We see the one who, though his people all through their history have been ungrateful and rebellious and have been faithless, we see one who is faithful all the way, who is constantly picking them up when they fall, chasing them when they run away, who saves prostitutes like Rahab, tax collectors like Zacchaeus, murderers like David, persecutors like Paul who is everywhere and always seeking the lost that they may be found, that they would see and know and experience him, we open the scriptures and we meet, maybe more importantly than all of that, we meet Jesus. We meet the one who when Paul was struggling, even as we are, in Romans 7 and sitting there and looking at his life and recognizing that his heart Converted though he was, it was still struggling with sin where he says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. We see him at the very end of that text 
saying, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That is how despairing he is of his own efforts. And what does he say? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the one. We meet the one in 1 John 1 who says to those of us who have fallen, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just not only to forgive them, but hear this now through the lens of Matthew 5.8, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We meet the one who not only ran the race ahead of us, we meet the one who ran the race for us and who is sitting in resurrection glory in the presence of the Father and who says to each and every one of his struggling sheep, where I am, there you will be also. And as we see and behold him, 2 Corinthians 3 says that's when we begin to be transformed. Because in beholding his glory, these hearts that are bound to their sins by love, they are seized by the power of a greater affection. Because how can you see that Jesus in all of his beauty, so ancient and so new to steal Augustine's language, and not hunger to know him, not just in part, but in whole? How can you see him even in a mirror dimly and not yearn to see him face to face? We may find ourselves at the end of our lives sitting where Martin Niemöller did and looking back over the things that we have done and feeling the regret and seeing the times that we have been unfaithful, but we have this hope. The God that we meet in the scriptures, he's the God who in Christ saves sinners. Just like you, just like Martin Niemöller, and just like me. And his desire, the desire of the one who said to the leper, I will be clean, his desire is for our cleansing because he would have us see him in full. May that desire May it capture our hearts so that we would be among the blessed, the flourishing, the pure heart, who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because those, those are the ones who will see God. Gracious Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that as we open it, Lord, we find ourselves confronted by the one who is beauty itself the one who is able to take our hearts that are enslaved as they are to sin and to set them free through grace. And we pray, Lord, would you set us free? Would you take those who are dead? Would you make them alive? Would you take those, Lord, who are struggling and when you fill them again with life, Lord, would you show yourself in every single way? Work now through your table in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.